Father, I come to you in a way that I've never come to you before, asking that you would bless the preaching of your word in a way that I've never preached it before. But Lord, these are days of many things that, particularly for my generation and younger, that are different than anything that we've ever experienced. These are strange times, Lord, but nothing is strange for you. Nothing catches you by surprise. Lord, I thank you that you are sovereignly, providentially involved with what is involving our world right now. I thank you, Lord God, that you are aware, that you are present, that you are at work. And Lord, we have wondered, we have prayed for a work from you for our nation for a long time, for our world. And Lord, we've asked that that would be what you would be about. We have wondered if this might be what you, this is about. That you might be using this to bring in a renewal of hunger for you, a dropping of our prideful, shaking our fists at our Creator and saying, we will decide what we are. We will decide what we should be about. But Lord, what we want more than anything as a nation, as a world, is to stay alive. And you give life abundant. Remind us of that here in your word. Remind us of what abundant life is, even if it be lived within the walls of our home even if it be only touching base with our closest friends and neighbors. If it's lived in you, if it's lived with you, it can be an abundant life. And that's what we desire. Teach us about how that is possible through your gospel, Lord God, here in this passage. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you thought lately about how much of your life has changed since February? Going to the store and knowing you'd find potatoes or toilet paper. Sitting down for breakfast with friends to catch up and grouse about taxes and other issues of local government and such. Life was so different for each of us and it was different from each one of us from day to day, from person to person. And now we're all experiencing the same slow, steady, slipping away of what was normal. Some of what is shared on social media or over texts helps us to laugh over our common confusion. Like the friend who was responding to the restrictions on gatherings of more than 10 people was kind enough to enforce her friend's Instagram post. I also appreciate the person who shared a map of their home as an inspiration for weekend travel ideas under quarantine. If you're familiar with the State Farm commercial, you'd understand why when asked, what are you wearing, Jake, from State Farm? Obviously not telecommuting, Jake responds with, uh, a hazmat suit? One of my favorite memes is uh, regarding the quarantine is one titled, When Your Human Comes Home From Work. And the dog is demanding his human washes his hands. 
before filling his bowl. We need timeless truths for troubled times. We're definitely living in troubled times. But what's unique about these troubles is that we're sharing the troubles. We are all recognizing and feeling the impact of these troubled times. But the ultimate timeless truth for troubled times was released 2,000 years ago. It was that Christ died, an act that it solves all that is wrong with our world. And he rose again. The resurrection of Christ is timeless truth for troubled times, regardless of what those times are. So let's look at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. This, this is the chapter that we are going to be looking at over these weeks as we look at the resurrection of Christ through Easter and the weeks following as well. Paul the Apostle writes to the Corinthian church, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Just to help you to understand the context of this letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul's he's also dealing with people's doubts. They're doubting key aspects of the gospel, especially how it applies to believers who have already died. Asking the question, will they actually rise again bodily? Many in the church are doubting the Apostle Paul's uh, position as an apostle of Christ. And these verses are written as a sort of, let's recall how our relationship started in the first place. When I came and preached to you and what that gospel was and is that I preached to you. And he continues in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Paul speaks of the gospel as what he received and simply is passing along to them. And we'll get into the rest of these important truths of the gospel, of course. But the rest of our verses touched on the veracity of the resurrection of Christ. In verse 6 we read, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Recall again, Paul is defending his apostleship, but he's also defending it in humility. His apostleship came as, as a result of his seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus and turning from a violent persecutor to Jesus' follower and to his greatest preacher. And Jesus appointed him as an apostle. Seeing the risen Christ was a requirement, among other things, of one's apostleship. And Paul talks of himself as being untimely born, the least of the apostles. He's describing himself as almost like being the runt of the litter. In humility, 
recognizing it is only because Christ called me to this position that I can claim it. As he goes on in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Reminding them again that that whether the gospel had come from one of the other apostles or came from me, that is what you believed. And that is what makes you a follower of Christ. That is what makes you saved. We had an interesting discussion uh, it popped up in small group a couple of weeks ago. and In honesty, we batted around, what if the gospel wasn't true? What if all of this was, was just a fanciful lie or, or just wishful thinking? The conclusion that, that we came to very quickly is thankfulness that God gave us evidence of his truth in our time and space. He gave us a recorded event, a witnessed event, an event that happened in our history. And that is the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul the Apostle leans on here in 1 Corinthians 15. And we celebrate over these weeks. Corinth was a major city of the Greeks. The Greeks just, in their culture, in, in, in their highfalutin wisdom, they didn't believe that there was much importance to the body. And in Acts 17, when Paul shared the gospel with the Greeks there in Athens, near near to Corinth, when he shared about the bodily resurrection of Christ, it actually says that many laughed when he mentioned the resurrection of Christ in bodily form. The church in Corinth, they lived expectantly of Christ's return. But at the same time, believers there in the church, they were dying. So what, the question that would come was, was, what about them? Many were arguing that those who had died had missed the boat for living eternally. Paul argues in this chapter that all of the truth of the gospel is intimately connected. And we'll see how the believer's future resurrection is connected to Christ's resurrection. As we read in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Meaning those who had believed in Christ and would be be resurrected bodily as he was. And we'll see how important the future resurrection of Jesus' followers, how important that is. How in verse 19 it said, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, while Jesus totally changes our present life, if he doesn't change our eternal prospects, we're still lost. And we'll learn also from this series how one's future resurrection works out exactly. How in verse 35 it says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? We'll understand why it is that that a resurrected body is key to our faith and our hope for the future. Make no mistake, our chance of living eternally in a glorified body is connected to Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. Jesus' death and resurrection isn't just about him saying, hey, look what I can do. It's also about him saying, hey, look what you can do through me. 
And so this here, what I share with you in this message is the gospel. Truth to be trusted in troubled times. The scariest part of what the world is facing with this virus is that there is no treatment. What can a person turn to if they contract this COVID-19? Let it be a reminder that there is a greater infection that has covered us. It is sin and it brings death. It has a 100% infection rate, if you will. It has a 100% death rate. And there's no cure for it except the gospel. And so I challenge you here, trust the saving truth of the gospel. We read in our verses, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is basically saying, it appears that I need to give you a refresher on the all-important gospel, which is at work in and among you. Paul's addressing the churches in Corinth here, and, and he had shared the gospel there. People responded. They received the word that he preached, that he proclaimed. They had trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord. They had been saved. And they were continuing to be saved, drawing away from lies and the practices of sin. And if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you're saved from the penalty of your sins. And as we walk through these troubled times together, you and I are being saved from fear. We are being saved from our dependence on our incomes. We are being saved from our dependence on our social gatherings. We are being saved from our ideas that we can be insured against, vaccinated against, and protected from everything scary. We are being saved from what we have depended on rather than God. So so what's meant here by this last statement, unless you believed in vain? In other words, unless your believing is worthless. Well, imagine that that you're sick and you you go see your doctor and you're prescribed a medication which is proven 100% to cure your illness if it's taken according to the directions. So you follow up with your doctor. You're, You're feeling better. And, and so your doctor says, well, it must be that you're, you're greatly improving. It must be that the medicine is working. But you ask that question, but, but doctor, what if it comes back? What if I'm not really well? It, it, your doctor might say to you, this is the prescription that I gave you. You received my advice. You filled the prescription. You followed the advice. You took the medicine, right? You're standing here feeling better. You're looking much better. Now, either you didn't actually take the medicine in the way that I gave it to you and advised you to take it, and and that would be a problem, or the medicine that I gave you just doesn't work, even though it claims it's proven that it does. Well, in the same way, Paul is saying, if you believe the gospel, you're being saved from your sin. You're being saved from death. You'll be resurrected, as we'll see in the coming verses. But if you're not being saved from sin and death, you won't be resurrected. Either you're not believing the gospel that I preach to you, your belief is in vain, it's not saving, or that something's wrong with the gospel that I preach to you, and then the gospel is worthless, that it's not saving. That would mean that there's no point in believing the gospel that I preach to you. 
We're seeing here the promise that salvation is working if the gospel is believed. And it will work to the final end of resurrecting us from the dead. If that's a gamble, it's all worthless in the end. But it is not a gamble at all. Our belief is not in vain at all. Why is our personal resurrection after death so intimately entwined with the gospel? Because Christ's resurrection not only purchased our freedom from sin, it freed us from the fear of death. And so I challenge you, trust the specific truths of the gospel. We read in verses 3 through 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. When we read this is of first importance, it emphasizes the centrality of the doctrines cited in the gospel here. As we are dealing with this virus, this coronavirus, we're taking every precaution. We're we're taking it very seriously, being careful to do what we can to not be infected ourselves, not to infect others unknowingly. But what if we took mankind's spiritual death just as seriously? What if we took eternity in hell just as seriously? We'd be sharing with anyone who'd listen. It would be of first importance to us, as it should be. I can't tell you how many times my mind this week has dwelt on what we seem to be losing. Everything that we thought was so important. But these truths are of ultimate importance. They are of first importance. The most important truths of our world are the following. Christ died. He literally died for our sins. He was literally buried for a legit period of time and was raised from the dead. And all of this was foretold by the scriptures. It was in fulfillment of what had been foretold about Christ's death for our sins. We're told in Ephesians 1.7 that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It had to come through his blood, through his death. 1 Peter 3.18 reminds us that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And in Revelation 1.5, Christ is described as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, it was for our sake God the Father made Christ to be sin. Christ who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's death, of course, is no small part of the gospel. Jesus died a horrible death according to God's will. And he modeled for us how living in right relationship with God means obeying and trusting him through the hardest times. Jesus modeled what it looks like to walk through troubling times when he asked the Father to take his suffering from him in the garden. Yet he said, not my will, but yours be done. And this is how we should embrace the good will of our good and loving God and Father through troubled times. 
We see the important truth that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And this is the focus much more in these weeks leading up to our celebration of Easter and his resurrection. But we see how as in Acts 2 verses 23 through 24, from the very first days, Jesus' followers spoke boldly to others of Christ's death and resurrection where they said, in, in, as they proclaimed in Jerusalem, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The most important truths of our world are the following. Christ literally died for our sins. He was literally and officially dead and buried, and he was raised from the dead, all as it had been foretold. All of this fulfilled and confirmed what was promised. One day would come a savior for all who trust in him. I mean, think about how many legs are required for a stool to work. You gotta have three. And in the same way, all of the truths of this gospel are important. Jesus lived a sinless life that he needed to live. Jesus died the death necessary to fulfill God's moral requirements as a saving sacrifice. Jesus rose from the dead as the Old Testament scriptures predicted. All three are necessary. All make for the greatest truth for mankind, especially during troubled times. So, the gospel is saving truth. The resurrection is an important aspect of the gospel's saving truth. So, it's pretty important that the resurrection is a truth that is historically accurate and had a lot of eyewitnesses. That's what we read about in verse 5 and following. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Just as Jesus' burial for three days verifies his death, the fact that he appeared to others verifies his resurrection. Lastly, because God took such care to show and document the resurrection of Christ, you can trust the verified truth of the gospel. Jesus appeared to this person called Cephas. Well, most of us know this is the other name for Simon Peter. It's pretty interesting here. Uh, Recall back, we, we went through a series as a church about the transformation of Simon Peter. This is the same Peter that wrote the letter that we were just in as a series. His letter that was soaked with the transformation of walking with and trusting in and proclaiming the risen Christ. He appeared to the twelve. This is the name for those disciples that had been chosen to walk with Jesus during his ministry. This is likely referring to Jesus' appearance in the upper room on the day of his resurrection. You might recall that he asked them if they had anything to eat proving that he had a physically resurrected body, proving, I guess, also that resurrection works up an appetite or something. And he also appeared to 500 people. This is a pretty impressive gathering, all seeing the same thing. The concept 
of this being a mass hallucination is a pretty ridiculous idea, but that some actually try to argue in order to disprove the resurrection. We're told that most of these were still alive when this was written. They could still describe the experience for the readers if they wanted to hear it for themselves. He also appeared to James. This is the half-brother of Jesus, born to Joseph and Mary as Jesus' younger half-brother. It's understood that James, along with Jesus' other brothers, didn't actually believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after he saw him resurrected. Also describes that he appeared to all the apostles. This would include appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus as the last apostle. All these accounts surpass any other religious experience on multiple levels. You see, in false religions, epiphanies of gods in spirit form were commonly claimed. But Jesus' followers claimed that Jesus was bodily present in his appearances after his death. Shrines have been built because of the testimony of one person seeing a sacred spirit. But multiple individuals experienced the bodily presence of Jesus over 40 days. And Paul's testimony is significant because he was the most unlikely of people to argue that Christ indeed was risen again. As he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was a persecutor of the church, turned to into its greatest apologist. But like so many of us, he went from disbelief to trusting in the risen Christ as his Savior. We've all seen those TV court shows where they're concerned about a flimsy case based on circumstantial evidence, where they end up just being able to tie together a string of events. Maybe it involves detectives that are left with asking, who'd have the motive to do this? Who'd have the means to do this? Who stands to gain from doing this? But what if somebody says, I'm an eyewitness. I can give testimony. I was standing there and watched the person do it. It makes it a completely different issue. There's plenty of circumstantial evidence of Jesus' resurrection, the empty tomb, the growth of the church, the apostles' willingness to die for their belief in the risen Christ. But all of that is circumstantial and pales when compared to the testimony of eyewitnesses. The power of listing people who can give their eyewitness testimony is huge. The fact that anyone could have gone and asked them at the time that this letter had been written is huge. And the fact that you can hang your hope on Jesus' resurrection as an historical event with eyewitness testimony is huge. Because Jesus came alive, everything he claims to be came alive. And he claimed in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks, do you believe this? Again, because Jesus came alive, everything he claims to be, came alive. And you can come alive, not just after you die, but now. 
Trusting in Christ is meant to give you an abundant life to live now, empowered by his truth, as I have found again and again to be important, to be reminding myself of this week. And I'm sure that you have found the importance of reminding yourself of his truth this week. Many of us have never lived in a time that is so uncertain regarding the future. We hear daily that no one really knows how this is going to shake out. But aside from all of God's promises about today, we can be assured that we can trust God for the future. We can trust him for the future because of what he has done in the past. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And I was reminded, talking with one of you on the phone this week, comforting one another, God can be trusted with our future because he's already taken care of our future. We know how it ends. We'll be resurrected with new bodies. We'll live in a new world. And there will never again be troubled times. Lord, I thank you more than ever that you have the whole world in your hands. You call us to be still and know that you are God. I thank you, Father, that through your Son, you took care of our greatest needs. And if you can handle our greatest needs of our sin and death, all of the smaller ones we can lay in your hands as well. Lord, we surrender to you. We surrender to your plan. Lord, we pray that you would remake us into your emissaries, your representatives on this earth during these troubled times. And that in the peace that you give, we would be ready to give the way to peace to others through Jesus. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.